Recently, I went to visit a friend. It is Monday, April 22nd. It's a warm day, but a rainy day, and I'm on Richardson Street in Williamsburg recording a conversation with... I am Adam Henry. I'm an artist living in New York. Adam and I talked about his art, his work both with painting and with sound, among many other things. But to start with, and for this particular episode, which we're calling Beyond Language, I asked him, as I like to do, what is Untitled? Untitled is the ability to categorize something without being tethered to language. And so we've created a word that basically means no language needed. And I love that. And um, with painting, particularly minimal abstract painting, it's prescriptive to title them. And it got in the way of what people were seeing. So if you have a painting of just a circle and you call it Big Sun, they're only going to see a sun because they're going to symbolically think about what that means. But with music also, I don't want the language to get in the way of the experience. And so Untitled for me is this beautiful, wonderful buffer zone that's saying this is categorically a thing without giving you the symbolism of what to think about when looking at it or hearing it. Untitled is also the name of the track composed by Adam Henry that we're listening to here. Hello, and welcome to the Untitled Art Podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Schmidt. Throughout the first nine episodes of this podcast, we've been creating a space to listen to and discuss all things related to sound in contemporary art. As I've said before, sometimes I fear that we've become too reliant on our eyes, a sense uniquely apt for the fragmentation of time brought about by digitalization. And I've also encouraged you, our audience, to continue to think of listening as another way of looking. This is episode 10, Beyond Language. The French philosopher Simone Weil said that a mind enclosed in language is in prison. Similarly, the novelist Virginia Woolf cautioned against allowing language to become the restrictive prison that Weil described, uttering that the human method of expression by sound of tongue is very elementary and ought to be substituted for some ingenious invention. Throughout two chapters in this episode, we will attempt to go beyond language, using sound both as a means to understand qualitative emotions from an artist using analog synthesizers to create sonic artworks and music, and also as a method to analyze and comprehend quantitative data through codification and computer programming. In chapter one, we'll continue our discussion with artist Adam Henry, and in chapter two, we'll explore a group of artists in the Bay Area working within the realm of data sonification. 
is an artist that I've known for many years, primarily as an enormously talented painter, recognized for his abstract works and formulaic application of a minimal palette. I had recently learned, however, that he had begun experimenting with sound as a new mode of expression, and I was lucky enough to be invited into his sound studio. What follows is an excerpt from a conversation we had in that room. So I was wondering if you could just describe like how you made this room, why you made it, and also just how it's built out and what you do in here. It was originally a sound production studio in the room that we are now. Mostly they would have people who would sing. In the room next door, you see a large window you could see into the other room. That was where it would be produced and mixed. Very recently, I was doing some work on the floor of my studio and met the person who had the studio, and he was moving out. He was taking everything down and destroying it. As I came in and saw it, immediately I got really excited. I had no idea across the hall from my painting studio is this perfect little sound studio. And he ended up moving out, so I took over the studio with my friend Ryan Rosowski, and we basically put all the foam up and the sound proofing panels and began to make it our own and to work in here. Adam continued to describe the story behind how he found a balance between his painting and the new sound studio across the hallway. You know, it really started because of a couple of different things coincided, and one was I developed tinnitus pretty badly too. And I think most people my age and my generation have it a little bit or will develop it at some point in their life. Tinnitus is a ringing in your ears that never goes away, that you hear it all the time. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's kind of a high-pitched buzz. Do people describe it differently? I believe so. I think people have like whooshes and some people have uh, more of a ring. I have a very artificial high-pitched buzz. When this happened, It was really difficult to deal with. I saw several doctors, and I heard the same thing from everybody. Like, there's nothing you can do. I tried a medication. I tried, you know, different types of therapies, and nothing really worked. But what I found worked the best for me was to basically pick up a guitar or an instrument and basically make sound with it, not necessarily music or not necessarily songs, but just sort of create some kind of, like, pattern or some noise, or just something. And after doing that for five minutes or so, it would really soothe my tinnitus. That was magical. And so it became sort of second nature for me to start to pick up a guitar or a synthesizer and just start to mess around with it. I do have a very small, limited background in music. I played in punk bands when I was a kid. and was never really trained musically. I don't read music or anything like that. And so it just became a big part of my life in that, you know, same that when I first started painting, once I started, I just realized what it did for me. It was so helpful with the way I saw the world, the way that I digested information in the world. I approach sound the same way I do painting. There's usually some sort of foreground, background, middle ground. There's instead of surface texture of the painting, there's atmosphere in sound. I asked Adam to describe one of his first public performances with sound. The chimney is a square concrete building with very, very tall ceilings. It has incredible sound in um, Brooklyn, New York. At the time, I was involved in a show that was about the historical painting group, French painting group Support Surface. They were thinking about maybe doing something performative, and I thought it would be a wonderful experiment to see if someone could hallucinate a painting rather than see the painting. And of course, at that time, I already started working with sound. 
So that's where I started. And basically the chimney, as I said, was a sort of square concrete structure. It's four walls, and on each wall was an amplifier and a person with a microphone. And there were four people, and each person was assigned a color, yellow, red, blue, violet. The colors that you use in your painting. That's my palette. Yeah. Yeah. They were basically just instructed to chant their color in any way they wanted to. And I played a drone sort of synthesizer track underneath all of that. So I started to play this sort of drone, and it really slows down everyone's thinking. People start to sort of chant out their colors. And so you would be hearing yellow, red, blue, violet, violet, and, and they were echoing and bouncing around all over the place. The idea of making a painting with sound is just so interesting and appealing to me. The way that language works, you're going through your own mind and trying to find memories of these colors, and you're not necessarily seeing the color. You're just hearing it. You're not even hearing the color. You're hearing the word of the color, mm -hmm. which is so interesting. Yeah. That brings us to the other aspect of this episode, which is data sonification. And I'm featuring works by students and artists and thinkers in the Bay Area who are taking large sets of data from government databases. Some of them generated their own data, but most of it is megadata or oh, wow. super data. Big data, yeah. Big data, whatever they're calling it these days. Yeah. And they're mining it and they're feeding that into basically a code that they've programmed. The code sonifies the data. They're taking like census information and then creating a sonic description of that data. The idea is that it's a new way of looking at data because the way our world is set up, you use math to understand, you quantify right. why things work or why things don't. Yeah. But this is a new way of understanding, which is more qualitative and in a form that hasn't really been recognized or acceptable as a way to understand data. How do you feel about the power of sound in sort of creating new forms of understanding? One thing we were talking about earlier this afternoon was emotion and empathy and compassion. Those are not necessarily characteristics that are valued in sort of economics, but could they be? I came across some data that was really shocking, which is that our eyes actually are able to take in the least amount of data and that our noses, um, our scent, and our hearing actually takes in much, much, much more. And so being in New York... A much more sophisticated mechanism. <laughs> yeah, and I'll have to double-check this. Taste might also... Um, I'm not sure where it lies in the spectrum here. When you think about walking around New York City, like you're really filtering out so much noise pollution all the time, so much scent pollution all the time. And those senses tend to be dulled a little bit, and you're relying almost entirely on your vision, both to navigate and understand the world. What you're describing is that if we can then create other spaces for studying perception of sound, then we will actually understand our environment more and we'll understand ourselves more. And that is super exciting, and it's sort of where technology could take us into these areas where we can help develop our perceptions. Woven throughout this episode are two untitled works that Adam has composed. The work you've already heard is a solo recording, and the piece you'll hear at the end of this episode is part of his collaborative project with artist Ryan Marzowski. Their non-lyrical experimental project, ironically, is called Words. When Adam composes his sound work, he is often using an analog synthesizer, meaning the relationship between Adam's hands and the machine is one-to-one, -one, or relating to a continuous transmission. 
This technique differs from digital, which is often mediated, such as through a computer, and thus not continuous. Adam speaks about these works in his own words. The second thing I played for you was a synthesizer track that I created in my studio before I had the sound studio here. And basically at the end of the day, I would move over to a synthesizer and create a pattern and then manipulate that pattern. And the manipulation of that pattern I found was so intuitive, so soothing and, and interesting as an artist that very soon I sort of found that these patterns are now part of the way I think about making things. That track was literally just this pattern, and then there's interventions in the pattern. Those interventions, they sound very emotional because as you set up a pattern, anything that deviates from the pattern is almost read as expressive. It's an analog synthesizer, so it is very reactive to what I'm playing, and it almost has some glitches and stuff built in. I think this is really interesting in relation to the data sonification pieces. They are based on formulas that get plugged into this code, and then everything reacts to the data that's fed to it. So it's very machine-made, but catalyzed by a human programmer. But from there, what happens really relies on the data that's been generated. And so with this piece that you're describing and that I heard, it is machine-made, it is being made through a synthesizer, but the data that it's reacting to is in real time because it's data that's coming directly right. from you, a human machine. Because ultimately, you do have synapses and nerves that are reacting and, and firing off and creating these emotions that are then expressed through your fingers and exported into this machine that then generates this noise. Right. So there are essential ways in which they're different and essential ways in which they're very similar. And so, relating back to the beginning of this episode, according to Adam, to be untitled is to be beyond language. Adam titles many of his artworks, both painting and sound, with the term untitled. So to end our discussion, I asked him to elaborate. When I first started to exhibit my paintings, I just started to use untitled parentheses and then a few letters and numbers that helped me to identify it. And it just really helped for me to be able to categorize them because you do need to have some kind of index of your own work. But it let them be free enough to where they could exist in uh, different time periods. And by that, I mean that the paintings themselves or the series of paintings themselves are nonlinear. And so if I have an idea of how to make a painting today, it doesn't mean that in 10 years from now, I won't go back to that idea. And with the sound pieces, they exist in a kind of nonlinear way as well. I think this is a really essential factor about how to understand your work. What you were saying with more experimental musicians or those who sort of want to break from the mold will say track one, track two, track three or musicians are thinking about something in linear form. What you're doing is something that is non-linear, and that's how we can situate it. Absolutely. Yeah. At the Untitled Art Fair in San Francisco in January 2019, 
we launched a partnership with the Art and Technology Program at the San Francisco Art Institute, led by professor and artist Cristobal Martinez. In his class, students learn how to sonify data using non-speech audio to convey information or perceptualize data. The concept amplifies the idea that auditory perception has distinct advantages, which Cristobal will elaborate upon soon, and also that it opens possibilities as an alternative or complement to visualization techniques. I personally went to meet with Cristobal Martinez's students in San Francisco last year and was absolutely floored by what I heard and saw. His class is a pioneering advancement in both applying progressive data analyzation methods and also in experimenting with a new form and technique for conceptualizing sound and sonic compositions. Martinez and his students presented their research and artworks over a three-day program at the fair titled Data as Art Material. I am pleased to revisit a redacted excerpt from this program here on the Untitled Art Podcast. Check one, mic check one. One, two, one, two. One, two. One, one, two. Okay, hello everyone out there in Radio Land. To get started, I want to say hello to all our listeners out there and uh, welcome you to this radio broadcast at the 2019 Untitled Art Fair in San Francisco, California. My name is Cristóbal Martínez. I'm a chair of art and technology at the San Francisco Art Institute and artist in the collective Post Commodity. Over the next three days here at Untitled, it's my distinct honor and pleasure to present to you a series of sound artworks by my students at the San Francisco Art Institute. This program is titled Data as Art Material. The work that will be presented today are audio compositions that are determined by sets of data. To be more precise, I will share with you the course description that I taught at the San Francisco Art Institute from which this work originates. Some of the most pressing questions in technology today have to do with processing, interpreting, and communicating the overwhelming stores of information that exist within today's digital archives, as well as the staggering stream of real-time data flowing throughout the world at this very moment. Within practices of sound art, there have always existed a variety of interests in translating, understanding, and expressing data through sound. Some of these meaning-making practices range from understanding relationships to telling stories. For example, some of the data that they encountered was data tied to environmental, political, statistical, scientific, economic, social phenomena, etc. in the world. So now that I've shared with you a brief idea of what this program is about... I also want to state how excited I am because a couple of my students will be joining me as my guests on this program today. One of my students is Juliana Funkhauser. Juliana will be co-hosting the program with me over the next few days. Juliana, welcome aboard. Thank you for being here with me today. Thank you, Cristobal, for that nice introduction. Also joining us is our student, Julia Fairbrother. We're going to get this program kicked off with a sound art piece that was composed and put together by Julia. Julia, welcome. Thank you. Welcome. (laughs) (laughs) So, Julia, tell us a little bit about yourself, what you're up to at SFAI. Recently, I've been working with the program Max and sonifying data that's related to medical practices in order to kind of break down the walls of scientific terminology and allow people to understand it in a more of a therapeutic way. So Julia, 
as I'm listening to you share with us a little bit about your idea, mm-hmm. it's complex. It's about cancer treatment. Very complex. And yeah. for our audiences, is there a way for you to sum up in maybe a, a couple of ideas what is actually happening in your data sonification piece? What is it conveying? Basically, what I did was I took the structural data of MEK and BRAF, which are the two proteins within cancer cells that cause it to grow rapidly. I took those structural data and I combined it with the structural data of the molecules of the medication. And I kind of showed that rise and fall between the fight of the medication and the cancer cells trying to prevail. Okay. What I think I'm hearing you say is that at the most fundamental level, this is a data sonification of cancer patients and their struggle and their mm-hmm. fight against particular kind of cancer. Mm-hmm. This one and, specifically is the metastatic melanoma. Okay, so metastatic melanoma. What we're looking at here is, is a kind of struggle. It's not only the struggle of the patient, it's also the struggle of medicine to help extend the patient's life. For sake of brevity, since we only have so much time in this podcast, 
Our aim in this episode is to provide a sampling of some of the data sonification pieces being created under the leadership and mentorship of Cristobal Martinez. Okay, so that was a rising resistance by Julia Fairbrother. Next, we have another sound artist. What I'm going to do is turn it over to you, Juliana, to uh, introduce this next artist and their work. Thank you, Cristobal. Heather Mitchell is also an art and tech major at SFAI. For her final project, she created a sonification of a variety of aspects of the stock market called Desire Beyond Survival. And I'm going to read the statement for that work right now. Many realized for the first time how strange, fast, and increasingly complex the stock market had become on May 6, 2010, when an event now called the crash of 2.45 p.m. briefly erased $1 trillion from the U.S. stock prices for 36 minutes. The extreme crash was caused largely due to an automated trading strategy run on computers, which all began to frantically sell in a domino effect after an unknown event triggered unusual activity. After investigations, trade regulators were unable to agree on the origins of this extreme crash and others that followed. Computer trading now accounts for 40 to 50% of trades on an average day and 90% when markets are volatile, according to CNN. These automated trades are executing millions of orders on multiple markets and exchanges in a matter of seconds. Even the experts cannot keep track of what's being traded. These dynamics highlight the mystery, speed, automation, and abstraction of today's stock markets and the world's larger economy. Contextualized by these realities, where is this high-speed and hard-to-track system leading us? And whose desires are represented and usurped by this high-speed market system? Desire Beyond Survival uses historical data from January 1st, 1950 to December 30th, 2017.
today we're featuring sound artworks that were created through a process known as data sonification. And data sonification is taking sets of data and using those sets of data as a compositional engine for expressing sonic ideas. So a lot of times when we think about data, we go to what's called data visualization. You know, we oftentimes graph data as a way to make it meaningful, as a way to tell a story or to understand what's happening with data. Sometimes we look at a certain phenomena in our world across time and we're able to sort of plot a graph and see, for example, how the stock market changes. Or another data visualization is like an EKG, you know, at the hospital where we're looking at a heartbeat rate on a heartbeat monitor. But a sonification is not visualizing the data but listening to it. And so what my students have done is that they've taken this data and they've created sound art pieces, not necessarily for the purpose of being able to understand that data scientifically, but for the purposes of thinking about that data aesthetically, trying to get a sense of what does that data feel like and how can that data be positioned emotionally, going back aesthetically, and what can we learn through the experiences of art, how we come to decode the world that we live in today. The next project they aired was by Ariel Wong, titled Race, taking a picture of the HALA cell as its data set. The HALA is an immortal cell line used in scientific research, the oldest and most commonly used human cell line, which was derived from cervical cancer cells taken on February 8, 1951, from Henrietta Lacks. And just a side note, one of my favorite podcasts, Radiolab, has a fantastic episode called Henrietta's Tumor that goes in-depth into this topic. When we think about data sonification, in this particular 
context, it's, it's a compositional device. And it's being used as a way to create an experimental music composition. I was mentioning earlier that it's not always audible, the effects the data is having on the sound. What my students did was they each built computer programs to be able to input the data into their computer program. And then they had to build out synthesizers and build all the mechanisms by which the data can then affect what data is uh, doing is it's affecting the pitches of sound, it's affecting when certain sounds play, it's affecting volume, timbre, any parameter of sound that a, a student programs into their system. Some of the sonic artworks they are creating are actually generative, meaning that the artwork itself is capable of reproduction and even creation. Generative art often relates to algorithmic art in the sense that the artist has generally created the framework for an autonomous system, often by the means of an algorithm or software program that is capable of functioning, developing, and propelling in dynamic motions. The next project aired was a reactive and generative sonic piece by Blue Grodin, which started first with a survey of a willing participant. So we're <laughs> listening to someone who went to the computer and, yeah. and was basically surveyed. Yeah. And surveilled yeah. by this system That's right. that, that Blue created. Yeah, it was and, me. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, let's give it a go and see what it sounds like. The next project they aired was a sonic artwork by Eric Clements titled Object Subject, which Juliana introduces here. Object Subject is a six-minute sonic sketch for a theoretical installation that utilizes live neurofeedback to provoke thought with humor and to critically question the prevailing discourse of objectivity as it is commonly invoked and understood. Neurofeedback is a therapeutic technique wherein a person becomes aware of the brain's processes in real time, using an EEG as both a window and a mirror into their consciousness. 
Hello and welcome to Object Subject An Interactive Objectivity Machine. Place the band around your head and ensure the white dot is centered on your forehead. If you begin to enter a state indicative of increased self-awareness or inner space an audible sound will curtail it and gently remind you to remain objective. The volume and samples being played are being activated in response to your brainwaves in real time. In this neurofeedback design silence corresponds to objectivity. Sit back without relaxing and enjoy your newfound objectivity. when you say, I object. I object. I object. Something else, some unknown force was also at play, manipulating the object's behavior. I have no objection, Your Honor. I object. Your Honor, I object. Objection, Your Honor. Objection, Your Honor. I object. I object. I object. I object. I object, Your Honor. You know better, Mr. Burger. Your Honor, object can be related to a real world object. So. The object that you create is pretty much related to the real world object that you can see. So it can be a car, a bicycle, a dog, a house, laptop, smartphones, PCs, or anything that you can say as a real world object. An object is an instance of a class. So if you take up an object oriented language, an object that you're creating is an instance of a class. So anything that is available in the class will be created for the object that you create for that class. So object have states, so states in the sense it can be a color, it can be the name, it can be something that is related I to object. an object that you create. So if it is a car that you're taking as an object, it can be the color of the car, it can be the make of the car, it can be the model of the car, it can be the number of the car as well. So objects also have behaviors. So behavior in the sense if you take up a car as an object, it can be the starting of the car, breaking of the car, stopping of the car, an engine of all those tasks. Reserving the right to object. I object. Objection, Your Honor. I object.
Objection. Objection, sir. Object. 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 You'll learn about object. So much in all my life. You're just an object to me. brings us to the end of the 10th episode of the Untitled Art Podcast, Beyond Language. I want to give a special thanks to Adam Henry for joining me on this episode and to Cristobal Martinez for his outstanding contribution not only to this episode but throughout our entire marathon collaboration during the third edition of Untitled Art San Francisco this past January. Cristobal, along with his TA, Juliana Funkhauser, led a team of talented artists to contribute to a three-day program that included data as art material, radio healers, smoke in the sky, and a three-part philanthropy summit titled Imagining the Gift as an Artist-Led Proposition. The recorded archives of these programs are available on untitledartfairs.com as well as soundcloud.com slash untitledartpodcastlive. Additional thanks to Mnemonic Recordings for producing this episode with additional assistance from Charles Gaddis and for my team at Untitled who share in my belief that by tuning out, you can tune in. Finally, a huge thanks to Adam Henry, Ryan Marzowski, and Words for contributing two of the Untitled tracks as the score for this episode. The applications are now open for the fourth edition of Untitled Art San Francisco, taking place in January 2020. For more information, visit untitledartfairs.com. In the meantime, there are a lot of great exhibitions on this season. We'd like to point out a few exhibitions opening next month at our partner institutions, including in the Bay Area. Don't miss the recently debuted exhibitions at SF MoMA by Suzanne Lacey and Pat O'Neill. And keep an eye out for From A to B and Back Again, the first major Andy Warhol retrospective organized in the U.S. since 1989. Also opening this month is About Things Loved, Blackness and Belonging at Bamfa, the third in a series of annual exhibitions developed in collaboration with UC Berkeley classes. Down in Miami, there are a number of fantastic exhibitions on view, including an eye-popping solo exhibition of the octogenarian artist Sheila Hicks, which just opened last month at the Bass. And keep in mind that June is the last month to visit the solo exhibition of Miami-born artist Purvis Young, featured at the Rubel Family Collection. 
Keep tuning in for the next episode where we'll be recording live from Rome, the cradle of Western civilization. Signing off, I'm your host, Amanda Schmidt, and I hope you'll join us again on the Untitled Art Podcast.